Well, I think I told you last week, if I'm not mistaken, that this would be the final sermon on the book of Hebrews. It will not be. <laughs> and the reason it will not be is the very first phrase of this particular text captured me. The, um, the benediction closing this book is packed full of freight. And sometimes just as a preacher, you cannot walk past it. You feel really a, a deep sense of um, conviction that you should preach this. And so I'm going to do that. Now let me share with you that the next book we will be looking at will be the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Uh, I've been reading through it over and over again and then collecting resources to study it. I pray that you would pray for me. It is not an easy book. It will be a challenging book. But at my place in life and stage in life, if I don't do it now, I'm, I may never get to. And so I like a good challenge. I like to uh, be driven to dependence upon the Lord to understand the text. With that said, would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And today we're going to look at verses 20 and 21. And then we will look at a uh, passage in John chapter 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then please turn to John chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. And we'll begin reading in verse 26 and read verses 26 and 27. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid this is God's word and let us pray our father and our God as we look at the text today we pray that you will provide for us much aid as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to behold wonderful truth out of your word. We do pray that the Spirit would empower both the one who preaches and the one who hears. And we pray that the truth would warm our hearts and stir us to love and good deeds. And we pray it would all be to your glory and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, what I'm preaching today is on the phrase or the theme, the peace of God or the God of peace. And when the writer to the Hebrews uses this phrase, it sort of caused me to pause for a moment and ask myself the question, exactly what does he mean when he calls God uh, the God of peace? Uh, the God who makes peace or the God who has peace within himself. And so I want to do just a quick little talk about that before we look more in depth at what Jesus said to uh, his disciples 
during the last days of his life in the Gospel of John. Uh, peace is intrinsic to the very character and nature and existence or essence of God. God is called the God of peace at least five other times in the New Testament. In Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. And these citations along with the opening invocation of the, our text, May the God of Peace, refer to two marvelous aspects of his peace. First, we see what theologians call the divine tranquility, the eternal repose in God's being. We know from Scripture that God is not anxious or fretful or fearful. All of that is absolutely antithetical to who he is in his being. He is the sovereign one. He is the omnipotent one. He is the transcendent one. He is the glorious one who is at perfect repose in and of himself in his being. And secondly, this concept of peace refers to an Old Testament word that most uh, Christians are familiar with. It's the concept of shalom. Shalom, it's a Hebrew word. And shalom uh, is far more than just an absence of conflict. That would be the negative side of it. It is more than tranquility. It is completeness and soundness and well-being and wholeness and welfare. We know uh, that God being spoken of as the, as the God of peace is parallel to one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I'm planning for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom, not calamity, um, to give you a future and a hope. And in this promise, the Lord declares he has plans for shalom. And his shalom is given to his people at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity when it appeared that the seas of the Gentile world had totally swallowed up the people of God. Therefore, the title, the God of peace at the end of Hebrews, comes as a consciously appropriate benediction to people who are fearful and restless and who are undergoing uh, persecution and basically God is saying to these people, no matter what happens, I will pick up the pieces of your life, I will heal your wounds, I will fulfill what is lacking, no storm will sink you, and he gives us his peace, his peace. And then Jesus said, as we just saw in John chapter 14, that the peace he gives, he gives to us, and it's not like the peace of the world, but rather, it is a peace that guards our hearts, that preserves us, and he gives us a deep sense of that. Now, Jesus is the giver of peace. He says, my peace I give to you. Christ's peace is qualitatively different than any other peace you can have. Because it's not the kind of peace the world gives. And we learn that Christ's peace is the antidote. It is the direct opposite of fear. Now think about that for a moment. Most of the time when we think about peace, we think about conflict. And we think about things calming down, chilling out, being level. In other words, sort of balanced and square. 
But in the Bible, here Jesus, when he speaks of peace in John's gospel, he says, let not your hearts be troubled or afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying that the very opposite to the peace he gives is fear. Now, I can remember being uh, a type A personality and reared the way I was reared uh, to be a tough guy that I never would admit to being afraid of anything. Because when you're young and stupid, you think you're indestructible. And then, you know, time catches up with you, experience catches up with you. Age, and, you know, just maybe 30 years ago, it dawned on me that I'm a very fearful person. I'm really afraid of a lot of things. I'm also profoundly insecure. Isn't it wonderful you come hear a sermon every week by a guy who's terribly afraid and insecure? <laughs> Look in the mirror and join my club. That's all of us. And so peace is the opposite of fear. It's the antithetical or the, the, the polar opposite of fear. You never see, however, in the Bible that it tells us it's wrong to be sad. Never. There are a lot of places in the Bible where we are exhorted to be joyful, but there's never any place in the Bible that it tells us it's wrong to be sad. As a matter of fact, the Bible is always telling us to what? Rejoice in our sorrows. Okay? To rejoice in our sorrows. The Bible is assuming Christians will be sad. Why? Because we live in a very, very sad, sad, painful world. That's reality. It's fallen. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's out of whack. It's out of order. Maybe before you are a Christian, you may try to sort of harden your heart against the sadness of the world, or you may avoid people or places that bring you into direct contact with the sadness of the world at least as long as you possibly can. But once you become a Christian and you receive the peace that Christ gives you, there's a sense in which you are drawn into the sorrows and the sadness of the world more deeply than ever before. You have a tender heart, not a stony heart. You get involved with people, and people are messy. And so the Bible, in a sense, says Christians are assumed to be people who are always sad, and we know that our Savior, Jesus himself, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But we're supposed to rejoice in our sorrows. But the Bible never one time says, rejoice in your fears. The Bible never says that Jesus Christ was a man of fears. He was a man of sorrows. The peace Christ brings can be enjoyed even in the midst of grief and sorrow. And it's not antithetical to sorrow, but it is absolutely antithetical to fear. And so, Jesus says to us, here is my peace, therefore you can't be afraid. And this is the test, this is the acid test, this is the searching test. Don't ever fall into the very unbiblical test that says a Christian is somebody who is always happy. That's not a bad biblical test, and if you apply that test to Jesus, he failed it constantly. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But what it does say is that if you're Christian, your fears will be diminishing. If you have a perfect relationship with God, there would be no fear. Why? Because perfect love casts out all fear. 
If you're growing in your relationship with God, you're less fearful, let's say, than you were last year. And that's the test. That's the acid test. But the scripture says God's peace eliminates fear, but not sorrow. It's so important that we have to understand what it means and what the teaching is. So I want to give you the three points that are in your bulletin so that sort of help you understand. And I basically move from Hebrews chapter 13, the God of peace, to John chapter 14, verses 26 to 27. And so there are three things here that I want to call your attention to. And it's kind of working backwards from the text. First, I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk first about the opposite of peace, which is fear. And then I'd like to talk about the counterfeits of peace that you might act, uh, actually be sort of deceived into. And then lastly, how Christ actually does give us peace. First, fear is the opposite of peace. He basically says, if you have my peace, there will be no more fears. Where does fear come from? Fear comes from sin. I remember years ago, I was reading uh, the Puritans. I read the Puritans a lot early on in my Christian experience because I thought I could live up to what they said. <laughs> and uh, I still love the Puritans, by the way. Uh, they, they are profoundly in love with Jesus and profoundly have a desire to see the application of the Bible to all of their lives. But I remember reading, I knew I'd get that from you, but I, I, I remember reading one of them and he said this and it's stuck in my mind ever since. He said, guilt is the parent of fear. Guilty people are fearful. Guilt is the parent of fear. How do we know that? Or do we know that? And I think we know that if we go back to the garden. The Garden of Eden. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. And there are a lot of ways to define sin biblically, but we will see that the Bible defines sin as saying to God in so many ways, with either attitude or action, I don't need you. I don't need you. And that's sin, saying to God, I don't need you. It's kind of like flipping somebody off. And that's basically what sin is. I don't need you, go away, leave me alone. Let me do it, let me live my life. That's what sin is. Um, so, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. And the Bible tells us that every day God would come and commune with them. He would come in the cool of the day and walk. And when he came near, we probably assume before they sinned, they were happy to see him. Maybe they even ran to him. And what was the language of their hearts? They knew no fear. The language of their hearts was, this is the greatest thing. The greatest one in the entire universe is my friend with me. What in the world can I be afraid of? If God is for us, who can be against us? That was the language of their hearts. We're told the moment they decided they knew better than God, that is, they were smarter than God, the moment they decided God said, don't eat this tree, but that is an unfair infringement on our personal freedom and our individual rights. How am I ever going to ascend the ladder of Maslow's needs and reach actualization? If I'm forbidden to eat this fruit, how am I going to do that? So they were smarter than God. They listened to the deceiver. They were deceived. They said to themselves, you know what, we have rights. 
We want to eat of that tree. And the minute they decided they knew better than God, even though they never said it that way, they really decided they didn't need God. And the moment you think you know better is the moment you say, I don't need you. And the moment you say, I don't need you, is the moment your relationship is broken. In the fall, the relationship was broken before the sin occurred. And that's what happened. And so they decided, I don't need you. And we're told next that they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. They had a profound sense of vulnerability. They had a profound sense of being defenseless. And we are told as soon as God showed up, Adam runs and jumps into the bushes and hides. And he says, when questioned, when I heard you come near, I was afraid. Why? Because guilt is the parent of fear. I was afraid. I was afraid. Now, the Bible teaches us at this point uh, is absolute. It is absolutely a profound analysis of our condition today. The Bible says the lie of the serpent in the garden was, if you move away from God, you're going to move away from fear. Think about that. If you move away from God, you're going to move away from fear. See, the serpent says, you're not really free. You need to be yourself. You're under his thumb. And Adam and Eve listened to it and lapped it up. You're under his thumb. You're enslaved. You're afraid of him. You need to move out away from fear. And the Bible shows us that when you move away from God, you aren't done with fear. You discover fear. Fear works the opposite of what the world might tell you. Fear gets greater as you move away from God. There are all kinds of uh, ways that we could go with this, but let's continue. The Bible tells us that when you move away from God, you don't move away from fear. You move into a greater experience and capacity for fear. The Bible tells us it's exactly the opposite. The reason why we have a spirit of fear is because we move away from God, we move into fear, and as we move away from God, we discover how fearful we are. And the Bible says if you've decided the tenets of Christianity cramp your style financially, sexually, or professionally, and you've moved away from God, what you're doing is you're moving into a spirit of fear. You will be characterized by a spirit of fear. Kind of let me for a moment show you how that works itself out. It is absolutely true. Fear comes from saying to God, I don't need you. Then when it comes, uh, then what it comes from uh, is interesting. For example, as you move away from God, a human being has a, an experience of radical finitude. Your sense of finiteness. You ever heard somebody say, you know, when I looked up into the sky and beheld all the stars, I felt so small. I felt like nothing. Maybe poets have said that and others. But there's a sense of radical finiteness. Uh, a sense of feeling small. Uh, years ago, I was in New Orleans and we had a hurricane, which is not uncommon down there. And I heard a psychologist interviewed on the local uh, TV station. And whoever asked uh, the psychologist the question was trying to help people deal with the stress and trauma and aftermath of a hurricane. And somebody said, you know, it seems like our ancestors 
just didn't used to fall apart when it came to disasters. Our ancestors used to bury half their children before they reached maturity. They took troubles and tragedies in stride. Now, why is it when we have a tragedy, everybody has to run on in and help everybody because they feel so traumatized? And the psychologist was really marvelous in his frankness. This is what he said. He said, well, think of it this way. First of all, our ancestors believed that they were small in a big universe that was basically controlled by God. They knew God. They prayed to God. And they didn't have the same sense of being powerless. For example, our ancestors, for our ancestors, this life was a very small part of reality. You lived for a while, then you died, and they laid you out right on the kitchen table where everybody could see it, and then you went to heaven. And that's how they lived. Then he turned and said, but for us, this life is all we have. Not only that, we're the only ones running the world. And when something like this comes along, we feel so powerless and so helpless and so small that it engenders in us tremendous trauma because we realize we're not in control. Why is it today we will sue, get into litigation over things a generation ago people just said or considered, well, that's just the way life is. Because a generation or two ago, we believed we were small, that we only lived here for a while, and then there was eternity where we were small, and it was this great big new heaven and new earth. Today we believe, no, there must be a human problem behind any imperfection. We think we're the masters. We think we're in charge. As a result, whenever tragedies hit, we're absolutely undone and traumatized. There's no way we can deal with the tragedies and troubles the way our, in our ancestors did. That psychologist had some pretty good thinking there. The more you move away from God, the more you feel your finiteness. The more you move away from God, the more you feel your powerlessness and helplessness, like somebody in a place that's too big for you. Fear also comes from the purposelessness that comes when you move away from God. A philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche had a great approach to things. Nietzsche said this, If you decide God is dead... If we realize and recognize that God is dead, what we need is people who will be able to handle that fear. If God is dead, then there is no right, there is no wrong, and there's no meaning in life. For example, if there is no God, if there's no God who speaks to us, or if we don't even know that there's one, and if there's no afterlife, and, or we don't know that there's one, and there's no judgment, or we don't know that there's one, that's either atheist or agnostic, that's what I'm doing, we don't know what right and wrong are, how could we ever say something like slavery or Hitler was wrong? If there's no bigger reality than nature, how do you know slavery is wrong? Because when you look at nature, you see something obvious. The strong should not oppress the weak, but when you look at nature, it does it everywhere. How do you know slavery is wrong? There's no way to know it if there is no God or if God is dead. What Nietzsche was saying is when you get rid of God, there's no way to be certain about your purpose in life, why you're here, what is right, what is wrong, anything. That's why we, well, what we need today in the modern world, said Nietzsche, is the Ubermensch. That is the Superman. 
The person who transcends the need to know meaning, who doesn't need to know what's right or wrong, and the person who can deal with the fear that comes from knowing there's no God. All Nietzsche was doing in all his slobbery writing was telling us that Genesis 3 is straight up true. He didn't say that, but when you move away from God, you don't lose your fears. When you move away from God, you discover your fears. Look at your fear of the future. Some of you in here might be perfectionist. I hope you're recovering. You know why? Because you're afraid of the future. And if you knew that God was in control of the future, you wouldn't have to worry. But if you don't know that God who is in control of the future, then you're always saying, but what if, what if, what if? Why is it that some of us can never get married because as soon as we get close enough to the person, we begin to find all kinds of faults with them? Then we sort of beg out. Why? We don't want to entrust ourselves to anything less than a perfect person. Why? Because we're afraid of the future. Perfectionism is just fear out of control, running rampant. Why? I have to do it. I'm the only one here. I'm the master of the universe. What am I trying to say? Fear comes from saying to God, I don't need you. When I was a little boy, about six years old, my dad decided that we needed to know something about the state of Tennessee. And so the capital of Tennessee is in Nashville, and I lived on the other end of the state. So he took me out of school and my brothers one Friday, and we drove to Nashville, Tennessee. And I was, a, you know, a little boy from a small town. I'd never stayed in a motel, hotel, nothing. And so we pull into downtown Nashville, and we go to the Andrew Jackson Hotel, which is what you would expect in downtown Nashville. And uh, got on an elevator, first time I've ever been on an elevator in my life, you know, just call me Jethro. And uh, my other two brothers were there. And so we start going up in the elevator, and we get to about the third floor, and uh, the door opened, and I jumped out. Well, we were staying on the sixth floor. Doors closed. I hear my dad go, wait! And all of a sudden, for the first time in my whole life, I was paralyzed with fear. I thought, oh, no. Oh, you know, as much as a six-year-old can do this, I was terrified. I thought, I'm never going to see my mom. I'm never going to see my dad. I don't care if I don't see my brothers again. But I, <laughs> I was terrified. And, and I felt very small at that moment. <laughs> And um, I, I, was, I was terrified. And then in about what seemed to me to be 10 minutes, more like 60 seconds, the doors of the elevator opened. This big hand comes out of the elevator, grabs me by the collar of my shirt, lifts me up and jerks me back in the elevator, bends down and looks at me in the eyes and go, I bet you were scared, weren't you? <laughs> it was my father. Came back to get me. And I have to tell you, I was pretty relieved. I was pretty happy about that. And so when I stepped out that door for the first moment, I thought, I'm free. And I'm just, I'm just going to play. You know, I had a lot of energy then, and I was very curious and, you know, just a kid. And all of a sudden, the spirit of the fear hit me. And all of a sudden, I realized I was lost and cut off from those who meant the most to me. 
And the Bible says that's the condition of every person born into the world apart from God. Our problem is we're too small for the position we've taken. We were built to hold God's hand in the universe. When you let go of God's hand, you are trapped by spirit of fear. Let's say that you're promoted to a a job. You get a promotion, and that's a cool thing. And you applied for the job, and you got the job, and uh, you knew that, you know, you felt pretty good about it. And then the first day at work you get there, and you spend your first eight hours, it dawns on you that you are absolutely unqualified and totally incapable of doing this job. You don't have the gifts, you don't have the aptitude, you don't have the training, you're not able to get it. What happens? Tremendous spirit of fear comes. Tremendous spirit of fear. What is sin? Sin is taking on to yourself a position in the universe that's too big for you. So what's the solution? The solution is God's peace. I'll move to that in a second, but what is the solution? What is the solution for me trapped in the hallway with a spirit of fear? What is the solution for an employee who realizes he or she is not capable to do this job? The only way to get out of fear is go back to my father, go to the boss and say, you know, I was a fool. I need you. I can't do this on my own. Don't you see that? That thing will keep me as a little boy in fear if I'm still afraid to admitting to my father I was wrong for jumping out of the elevator. The fear of obeying and the fear of depending on God is one fear that is key to every other one. You know, uh, some of you say, well, I never really said to God, Pastor Tim, I don't need you. But if you're saying to God in this place and this place, I know better than you, I know this is wrong, but I know better than you, God, then you're saying, I don't really need you. You're going to have a spirit of fear that will consume your life. You will have it. Every week when I say something like, you need to say to God, I'm flat out for you. Whatever you say, I will obey. Whatever you send in my life, I will accept and learn from. I give myself to you in totality. Every week, somebody will call me or somebody will say to me, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid if I give myself to God flat out that I'm going to look like an idiot or a fanatic or one of those stupid people. There are strange things in the Bible. Who knows whether I believe all of it is the fear of obedience, the fear of going back and saying, I was wrong, I need you. Now let's look quickly at the counterfeits of peace. Uh, The antidote to fear is peace, but Jesus also says there are some counterfeits to peace. He says, peace I live with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let me suggest two ways you can tell true peace that Christ gives from counterfeit peace, from the world's peace. First of all, true peace, the true peace of Christ, is an intelligent, rational peace. It's not a stupid peace. It's intelligent and it's rational. Some years ago, a friend of mine, who is now a doctor, was back in med school, and he shared with me as he got involved in medicine, when he first saw the horrible things, horrible injuries, 
horrible deformities, horrible diseases. When he began to read his books and he saw how many germs there really are out there that have your name on them. And when he saw all the things that were really fragile about the human body, everything that could possibly go wrong, at one point he said to his professor, when you see all this suffering and you know about all of this, how in the world do you stay sane? <laughs> the professor said, like all intelligent people, you stay sane by not thinking too hard. <laughs> in other words, you float down that big river in Egypt called Denial. Now, I could go to plenty of books and plenty of great literary works that basically say the same thing. If you want peace, don't think too hard. You're just too analytical. You're just too, you think too much. The difference between the kind of peace that is Christ's peace and the world peace comes from closing your eyes to the truth. Christian peace comes from opening your eyes to the truth. Christian peace arises from a greater awareness of who you really are. Are you a Christian? Understand this. You're adopted. You're accepted. You're loved. You're an heir to the throne of the universe. If you're a Christian, you know that God is holy and loving and wise, and He's going to deal with this. And if you're a Christian, you know what your future is. The, the more a Christian talks about and thinks about that, the more a Christian thinks, the more peace they get. The doctor says, you want to have peace? Don't think too hard. The Christian says, you want to have peace? Think harder. See the difference? If Christ is your Savior, and you know all of these great things, then the greater your alertness, the greater your awareness, the greater your peace. Thinking and reasoning become your friends. Jonathan Edwards says Christian peace, and only Christian peace, is reasonable peace. It's rational peace. You thought Christianity, you thought faith meant to stop thinking? Oh no. Christianity says faith, and especially peace, come when you really begin to think. Now what kind of peace can the world give? If you don't know there's a God, and if you don't know if He's there or not, all you can do is stop reflecting too much, because if you reflect too much, you will see that you are terminal. If you reflect too much, you begin to see you don't know why you're here. You don't know what in the world you should be spending your time doing. And there's no way to know that. You don't know what is right. You don't know what is wrong. And if you reflect too much, the world's peace just doesn't work. The world's peace comes from closing your eyes. Christian peace comes from opening your eyes. The world peace comes from don't think too much the world's peace is always irrational and the Christian peace is the most rational at all secondly another counterfeit Jesus says not as the world gives give I unto you Christian peace is constant the world's peace is uh, intermittent what is the world's peace usually based on circumstances let's say that you're single and a really attractive person asks you out. You're feeling pretty good about that. All right. Things are going well. I, I really got peace going on here. And uh, <laughs> uh, things are going well for you. Um, a really attractive person has asked you out. Let's say you get a raise on your job. Let's say you get a promotion. 
These things, though, my friends, the things that the world's peace are based on, even the most durable of them are like bubbles on a water. The most durable ones, the ones that stay for a while like a good marriage, the ones that really tear you up inside, even in those circumstances, which are your peace that look like they last for a while? You know down deep inside, especially if you get more and more attached to them, as they become more and more your peace, you realize they're temporary. It will drive you crazy unless you take refuge in the peace of stupidity, which is to say, this will go on forever, but it won't. On the other hand, Christian peace is based on what? Based on things that can never change. That is the reason in Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Now, when the mountains get cast into the midst of the sea, everything a world's peace could be based on gets moved. Your home, your livelihood, your spouse, things like that. All those things are moved with the mountains. Christian peace is not based on anything the mountains can possibly touch. And therefore, Christian peace is constant. It is relentless. It's not intermittent. We know the things Christian peace are based on are not going to change when the body dies. They're not going to change when the mountains are removed. They're not going to change when the whole world is rolled up as the stage we know it to be. Christian peace is like a river that never runs dry. So how do you get that peace? How do you get Jesus' peace? How do you get Christ's peace? Jesus says, peace I live with you, my peace I give unto you. Now we've seen that the opposite of peace, and we've seen the counterfeits of peace, but how do you get Christ's peace? And the answer is first, you'd really miss it if you didn't realize the context of John's gospel. Jesus is talking to his disciples about dying. He's about to leave them. He's going to die the very next day. And he says, peace I live with you. What does that mean? He's saying, this is my last will and testament. The secret of this verse is Jesus is leaving them, uh, is leaving them peace in his will, so to speak. Now, we all know the things you leave in a will do not come to pass until the testator dies. And unless you understand the peace of Christ comes only because he dies for you, then it's completely wrapped up in his death. It is the legacy of his death. Until you see peace can only be left to you by a dying Christ, you're never going to understand peace. Because Christian peace is not subjective, it starts out being objective. Christian peace is based on the fact that Jesus Christ died. He paid every debt, fulfilled every requirement for you. Uh, Christian peace is based on what he has given you, a clear deed, a clear title to, such as adoption into his family. Now, how does that work in your life? Take a look and see how Paul does it. When you look and read a, a chapter like Romans 8, Paul takes that truth and he works it into his heart. And if you really read Romans 8 the way you're supposed to do, all you would do would be yell. You would be screaming with delight and joy if you read Romans 8 the way you should read it. So the next time I'm preaching on Romans 8, I'm going to yell. Why? Because of all that it says. It says, if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? If God made me acceptable, who is to condemn me? Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Anything I do, anything you do, nakedness, peril, sword, famine, knowing all these things we are more than conquerors. All he's doing is yelling. He's amped up. He's screaming. What is he doing? He's working subjectively out the truth that is objectively given to us there. The objective is Jesus Christ died. Therefore, I am right with God. Now, how does your heart act like that? When you come to those cries in the New Testament, do you cry out? Does your own heart cry out like that? If not, you don't really understand peace. A Christian heart says, shut up, heart, with all your guilt and your performance-oriented anxiety. You will never be my peace. Shut up, world, with all your opinion and changing fashion. You will never be my peace. The heart turns around and says to death, Shut up, death. Spare not. Do your worst. Come. Try to get me. Wait until you see what happens. You see, a Christian's peace arises under the death of Jesus Christ. Until you see he died for you. Until you build your life on the fact that he died for you. Until he is your dying Savior, not your moral example. You will never know that peace. Ever, ever. And how does peace grow? Some of you say, you know, I understand that, Pastor Tim. I believe that, but I still don't have peace always. Some of you say, I know that, but I don't see myself growing in a sense of, of peace. Uh, my fears are still there. Sometimes get the best of me. Well, don't forget verse 26 where it says, The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of all the things I've said. That's what Jesus says then immediately he says peace i live with you my peace i give unto you the peace comes when you permit the holy spirit to take jesus's words and drill them deep into you Amen. that's what happens and if you want to do that by the way if you want to deal with your fears then go to romans 8 sit down open it up and the first thing you have to do and you have to say is that unless the Holy Spirit speaks to me, unless the Spirit softens my heart and warms my heart, I will never see the realities here. But He will. And He says, I'm not going to find this peace because it only comes from the Holy Spirit showing me what Jesus said. The worst thing you could do to a person who is full of fear, struggling with fear, is say to that person, pull yourself together. Get a grip. Rise up. That doesn't give anybody peace because peace comes from whom? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us uh, peace. The worst thing you can say is pull yourself together. Jesus never said that. Instead, he says, open my word. Seek my spirit. He will drill it into you. The worst thing you could possibly do again is say, pull yourself together. So you go to Romans 8, and what is Paul doing? He's dealing with his fears by working out the truth of what Jesus said. He's working it out. He's working it in. If Jesus has done this, if God has done this, if he has done this, if he's done that, good night, why in the world am I afraid? I catch myself doing this. I catch myself being caught up in something and totally, you know, being swallowed up by it. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, out of His grace, 
well, say something to me, a truth from God's Word that I've known for a long time, but just don't have the file pulled up at that moment. And the moment he does, I rebuke myself and say, what in the world are you thinking? What in the world are you doing? He drills down in us and imparts his truth to us. Now, I challenge you today to receive his peace. Receive his peace. There are only several kinds of reasons for this. Number one, there may be some of you sitting out there who are saying to yourself, I don't really need God. You don't need his law, so you're disobeying what he says. The Spirit's fear-killing work can never happen in your life because the Spirit's job is to show you what Jesus said. It includes His commands, and if you have a bad conscience, no wonder you're afraid. Some of you know intellectually you're forgiven, but deep down inside you feel like, but I shouldn't need His charity. You're still kicking yourself. You're pricking yourself. You're saying to yourself, I'm such a bad person. Do you know what that means? You're asking, you're saying to God, I don't need your charity. I don't need your grace. Thank you very much. God said to Peter, what I have made pure, do not call impure. You might be talking about yourself that way, don't you see? Some of you are just so busy that you're not spending time in prayer. You're not in the Word. And you think the Holy Spirit is going to work if you don't give Him time. When you say, I don't need your law, I don't need your grace, I don't need your fellowship, you are not going to have peace because that's where it comes from. We, of all people, should be people who are most in repose and peace because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful. And we thank you that you've spoken us to, to us today regarding peace. And we thank you that we can know it in Jesus, but we can live it out by, by your Spirit taking the truth as we expose our hearts over and over again to your truth. Your Spirit can take that truth and make it part of who we are. And, and, and it becomes part of our being, part of the warp and woof of life, of the essence of who we are. We thank you for that.